like I don't know what I would do with a cow if somebody gave it to me. <laughs> like, I mean, we just like have this natural assumption, like, yeah, poor people in developing countries, they know how to take care of cows. They might not know how to take care of cows. Okay, so welcome to Let's Do Something About It. This is a podcast with the intention to bring together entrepreneurs, academics, politicians, and just regular people to talk about some of the problems that face our world and to see if we can come up with some solutions. So I'll, I'll give a very brief introduction about myself. Uh, my name is Isaac Dixon, and I, I have a degree in international business and economics from Utah State University. And so the, the idea for this platform, as this is the first episode of Befitting to give a little bit of background, was I, I felt that you know, out there, there are a lot of, there's a lot of talk about problems and, 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 and it's very stressful. We have, you know, you hear about political unrest, climate change, poverty, racial, racial divides, um, but, but it's very problem focused was what I felt. And I felt that I personally wanted to know what, what I could do to try to contribute to some of solving some of these problems. And so what I decided that I wanted to do was interview some of the smartest people I know who are experts on in these areas um, and and hear a little bit of what they thought could be done to, to help help approach these problems. And um, I'm hoping that each episode, this will be our first one, and I'm very excited to brag about our first guest, um, which who I feel very lucky to have him here, but that you'll leave feeling in, more informed and educated about some of the problems that, that maybe you've heard about, but don't really know what you can do about, but then also that you'll feel empowered to know kind of like, I hope I will feel empowered. And I know that I, I, I could use a little bit of insight and inspiration on, on what I can do to help solve some of these problems. So um, anyway, so I guess we'll, we'll get to uh, introducing our first guest, uh, Dr. Paulson. Like I said, I very, feel very lucky to have him here with me today. He received his PhD in economics from Yale University, which I, I know speaks for itself, but Dr. Paulson is a professor of economics at Utah State University, and he teaches a class on economic development. Uh, I took that class, and that's kind of, uh, that, that's how we met. But I am really excited to hear what Dr. Paulson has to add about his unique insights. His work has focused on poverty and economic development, economic inequality, with a personal connection to Haiti, which I expect that we'll be able to get into today. And I'm very excited for that. So I, I'm excited to hear his insights into this, this very pressing problem. As you can guess, we're, today the problem we'll be talking about is international poverty. And Dr. Paulson is the expert that has agreed to come on to talk about it um, so we can understand uh, you know, an economic inequality in a way that is both actionable and, and, and very educational. So anyways, welcome, Dr. Paulson. I appreciate you being here and taking some time out of your schedule. Happy to be here. Cool. So anyways, I, before I forget, Dr. Paulson also has, in addition to being a professor, um, he has a YouTube channel, actually a couple, I believe, one of them in Haitian Creole, one in English, which um, will be more accessible to the, the viewers here who speak English only. Um, but I'll link that in and you'll have to check it out. We have some really cool videos as well. So, um, so Dr. Paulson, I guess to start out, I was wondering, if you'd be willing to share a little bit about, you know, your background in in economic development, anything that I missed, and really what got you interested in 
you know, international poverty, as a lot of your work is focused in, in that area. So the story of getting started here and then like how it all develops is when I was 19, I decided to take a pause from school and serve a two-year mission for the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints. I thought I'd be going somewhere exotic around the world, and instead I went to Florida. Uh, but the church had asked me in Florida to work with Haitian immigrants. And so I was able to learn how to speak Haitian Creole and work with immigrants for about two years. That ended in, in uh, June or like May 20, 2009. And about six months later is when the earthquake hit Haiti in January 2010. And I remember being at a career fair, right? I mean, I'm back in school. I'm in a career fair. I'm walking around from booth to booth and the earthquake has just hit. And my goal had been to look for a place where I could be a consultant. But as I'm like talking to these booths and going around, it just felt incomplete to me. It felt empty to just be focused on this when the family of the people who I had met in Florida were suffering through this tremendous earthquake. And I remember thinking during this career fair, like, wow, if I just understood international poverty better, if I understood the causes of poverty and how we get out of these, like maybe I could be part of a solution for Haiti. And that's that over the next week or two is when I decided that I wanted to go and do a PhD and focus on these things. Uh, I was a little naive at the time, like uh, it, it's very uh, idealistic view of what happens when you go and get more education, um, because then I went off and I uh, went to Yale and I decided I would go research the history of Haiti to try and understand where the poverty came from. And it just turns out that it's really like, even if you understand where the poverty comes from, it doesn't necessarily tell you how to get out of that situation. Um, and it's really hard to implement a lot of these policies, but I'm still interested in this as a big picture goal. And as a result, you know, I try to study and learn as much as I can about international development and poverty alleviation. Uh, but it all started with that personal connection that I formed with friends in Florida. That's super cool. I, I, I honestly, I hadn't realized that that you decided to do the, the PhD in economics because of that. So that's really cool. That, that's awesome. So, so yeah, that's awesome. So the, the, I, I guess that's no senior. So if I look down, that's, that's what I'm looking at. But um, I was wondering um, if you would be willing to break down. I think that poverty is something that's really hit by pop culture. You know, there's a lot of talk that, you know, like, like maybe some myths, some, some, some myths, false ideas that, that people understand about poverty. And I wondered if, if you maybe would give a little bit of insight based on your personal connection to, to Haiti, but then also your, your theoretical work into what is poverty? You know, what does the problem look like? Um, kind of helping us avoid some of those myths of, oh, poverty is just, just hunger in, in Africa, right? Or, and then I guess I have some more questions about that after, but I wondered like, what, what, what is poverty from a theoretical standpoint and then also maybe like in a personal standpoint? Uh, yeah. Poverty is really interesting because Amartya Sen has this book uh, called Development as Freedom. And he focuses on the fact that economic development is a, just a way of making sure that humans are free and have opportunities in their life. And that really bears out in the data. Like, a lot of times you think of like, as 
poverty as like you don't have certain things. And that's that's definitely what I'm going to be saying in just a minute. But I think a lot of people get too focused on, oh, you're you're just like so focused on the economy and growth, like you don't care about people. Like you're mm-hmm. willing to sacrifice people to get economic growth. For the bigger picture, and, yeah. And and that's wrong because the economy is people. Like there is no economy without people. And so when the economy grows, people grow as well. And that's this idea of development as freedom. As your economy grows, more people in that economy have access. I guess grow and develop are kind of like two words. Grow could just be like the size of the economy, but development really speaks to that aspect of opening up opportunity for people. So some examples I like to give, if you look at access to electricity and you look at how rich a country is, right? Like rich countries, all everybody has access to electricity. And that's like such an important part of almost every aspect of life right now. We're talking right now yeah. thanks to right. electricity, right? Our voices are doing, and the people listening to us right now are listening to us thanks to electricity. The, I, I teach in a basement this semester at Utah State. We would not have light in there without electricity, right? Like, and, but because of that, I'm able to teach. So they get an education. You have access to the internet thanks to electricity. All that. Electricity just enables so many things. And all rich countries have 100% access to electricity. If you need it, you have access to it. But if you go down to the poor end of the spectrum, there are plenty of countries where only 20 to 40% of people have access to electricity. That means they often don't have access to other resources such as um, agricultural tools that rely on electricity, access to education, access to healthcare services, right? A lot of that is dependent these days on having access to electricity. So those people are are losing access to something as a result of that because their country is poor. If you look at improved sanitation, and basically, do you have a, do you get to use a toilet or do you just, when you poop, is it on the side of the street? Yeah. Right. And, and that's important for health. That's important for dignity. There's like so many things that that contributes to. Same thing as electricity. Everybody in improved, in rich countries has access to improved sanitation. In poor countries, you have a lot of people who don't have access to that. And that leads to lots of other problems. Uh, if you just look at like life satisfaction, across countries there is a very strong relationship between how people describe their lives and how rich their country is one of those reasons is because people in rich and rich countries live longer than people in poor countries if you look at the average life expectancy in a poor country it might be 55 years the reason why it's so short is that so many children die like 10 percent of the children the democratic republic of the congo don't make it to their fifth birthday. Like that is a very unfulfilling life for somebody living there. And like, not just for the person who dies before they turn five, but for the parents that know that every child that comes into their family has a very high risk of not staying with their family very long, right? Child mortality is a serious issue. But if you look at the relationship with the uh, GDP per capita, rich countries have very low child mortality rates and poor countries have very high ones, right? Poverty is missing out on so many of the experiences and freedoms that exist in the world. 
And when a country develops, it gives more people access to those things. I love that. That's really cool because, you know, you actually hit on one of the, the thoughts I was hoping we'd touch on, which is kind of the cliche that I think is, is, is out there a lot. And I don't think it's malicious, but it's the idea that they're poor, but they're happier than us, you know? I think that a lot, I, I'm sure, I'm assuming you've heard that too, you know, the idea that, oh, because our lives are so stressful, you know, everyone in these poor countries, they're still simple lives and they're happy. But you pointed out that, you know, life satisfaction is is not better in these areas. You know, maybe, you, you know, so, so that's something that I, I'm glad you touched on. Uh, to that point, I mean, I've definitely seen that, right? Like I, I've been in Haiti, which is the poorest country in the Western hemisphere, and I find happy people, right? But there are moments of happiness is one thing, right? Like they can create moments of happiness, but then they also have moments of distress and really difficult lives. So you have to like take both of those things into account. Yeah. But then also like there's a survivorship bias, right? Like the people you see might be happy, but you miss all the people who die because of that poverty, mm-hmm. right? Those people aren't happy, right? That's- those are people who have lost out on opportunity because there wasn't enough food for them to, or enough healthcare for them to make it past their fifth birthday or whatever age it is, right? So, so yeah, you, you're gonna find happy people, but the reason why you can find them is because they haven't di- died yet. Yeah, so I'm hearing it's not just all about money, it's you know the, this inequality of opportunity and of experience and, and, and freedom, I guess, is what you mentioned. So that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, money does no good for you by itself, right? I mean, if that was the case, Venezuela would be the happiest country on earth because they just print money like crazy. No, it's like, what can you buy with that money? Can you buy food? Can you buy enough freedom for you to go on a vacation or not have to work as much, right? Those are the things that we strive for here. Those are the things that people are striving for there as well, right? Like, if if you live on a two-acre farm, and your entire family is dependent on whether that farm yields enough that season. Like, yeah, sometimes you're happy because it's a good year. And sometimes you're like knocking on your neighbor's door saying, I am not going to make it through. Is there like any way you can share food with me? Yeah. Well, yeah, that's super cool. I, I wanted to, in addition to this, I, I wondered if you could touch on the we talked about this in the class, kind of the theoretical framework of, we talked about this, what makes poor countries poor and rich countries rich? Like for, for I guess, the average viewer, you know, I think that's something that maybe we don't know. You know, you take the United States versus versus a country, like, like you said, the, the DR on Congo or, or Haiti. You know, what, what do economists believe makes that difference? Yeah, so you can look at, let's say, you can imagine an exercise where we take a person's body and we say like they weigh 200 pounds, right? Well, how much of that is made up of bone mass? How much of that is made up of muscle mass? How much of that is fat? And then how much of that is just like your organs, all the other things that are floating around in your body, right? And you could actually like break down, these are how much of each one of these components contributes to a person's body fat, not about body fat, but weight. And then you could actually compare to other people and say like, well, you know, this person weighs 200 pounds, but this person weighs 180. Like what accounts for the differences between that? Well, it turns out like they're different heights and at different heights, like you have to have more bone mass. Uh, You have to have more muscle mass just for the fact that your muscles have to be longer, right? 
and you don't necessarily have to have more body fat, right? But you could break down those differences and say, oh, the difference is, you know, 10% of this is the fact that they're an inch taller. And so all of their organs and everything are going to be scaled up a little bit more. 70% of it is muscle mass. It turns out the guy is like super buff. And then you have the remaining like 20% is body fat or something, right? Mm -hmm. You can do some sort of comparison where you break down the components and compare those people and you can account for the differences in the components. We like to do a similar thing in economics and we call it development accounting. And what we do is we say like, let's take two countries and let's try to understand why one country is richer than the other. And we'll already scale for population just to take care of that, right? So we're just gonna assume that they're basically the same size population or we're gonna do it in GDP per capita. And then we're gonna say, what kind of things do we expect to be that difference? What are the bones? What are the body fats? What are those different things? And so we primarily focus on two things and that is physical capital. That's gonna be the machines the buildings, though, like how you account for all these things can be difficult, but you're going to value the tools that exist in this economy. And then we're going to have human capital. And that is going to be like the skills, the education, the work experience. We're going to try and value how much skill is embodied in this economy. Now, those two things by themselves, just like bones, uh, muscle, and fat, aren't gonna account for everything in a human body. Those two things don't account for everything in an economy. So we put everything else in the economy in a bucket called total factor productivity, TFP. And so we're gonna take these three things and we're gonna measure that, well, we're actually gonna take the first two things, just like we might measure bone density and muscle and fat, and then just say everything is, the rest is in this other category. We're going to measure human capital and physical capital across all countries. And then we're going to say anything that's not that gets thrown into the TFP bucket. And what we can say is that like when we look on average across countries, the difference between rich and poor countries is only like 10% of that is physical capital. At most, it's 10%. So those are like to take into account that we have factories or we have cars or something like that's really only explaining about 10% of the difference between these countries. Then we go to human capital and skills and education. And you look across countries and you're like, well, this is probably going to explain a lot, right? Because you have people who are illiterate a lot in these poor countries and rich countries often have high rates of literacy. That's only explaining 25 to 30% of the differences between them, which is actually a pretty big thing. But that still only gets us up to about 40% of the differences explained, which means that remaining 60% or you know 65% is being explained by TFP, productivity, all the other things in the economy that aren't these two things. Now, because that's made up of so many different things, not any single one of them is going to be human capital or like human capital itself is 25 to 30%. There's probably not one single thing that's going to make that up, especially on average across countries. But, you know, what it's telling us is that for the most part, we don't understand what the differences are, right? We don't, we can't pinpoint besides education. And that's why education gets so much attention 
is that we know that education is a big gap between rich mm -hmm. and poor countries, and we can push that. But there's a big chunk of it that we don't have an explanation for. And we have lots of different things that we could throw into that category. But it's hard to say, like, this is that one thing in productivity that's going to just make these countries better off. Yeah, that's really cool because, I mean, I, and as we'll get in a minute, you know, of things that, that need to be done, like there's still a lot of work to be done, I guess, I understand, in figuring out, you know, what is that TFP consistent of, and, but that's really cool. I appreciate that you breaking that down. So I, I, I know that you have, a lot of your work is in Haiti and your personal experience in Haiti. By nature of that, I guess I, I, I've learned a little bit about Haiti and, and its history. I wondered if you would be willing to, to take a minute and kind of go through the history and then tell the story, I guess, of Haiti. You know, we talked about path dependence uh, before, you know, and then there's, there, there's different legislations about um, property rights and things. I think those would be very interesting for someone who maybe is unfamiliar with the idea of international poverty. You know, what, with this particular country, what, what is the story that maybe leads to being one of, to being the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere? Haiti has the unique distinction of being the only country where slaves revolted and won. So uh, prior to 1790, we had the French in Haiti producing a ton of coffee and a ton of sugar. Like Haiti was producing half of the world's sugar, half of the world's uh, coffee. It was one of the most productive regions in the entire world. The slaves revolt in the 1790s because, of course, this is an incredibly brutal regime where slaves are dying so fast that the French are having to just continuously import more to replace that labor. And by 1804, the former slaves have now declared independence and become their own country. And you can imagine that like, once you become your own country, especially throwing off such an oppressive regime, like you want to make sure that you take some steps to say that this isn't going to happen again. Mm. And there was a little bit of a tension where some of the early Haitian leaders thought that maybe leaving the plantation system altogether wasn't the best idea. They tried to hold on to some of those things. But generally, you get this rejection of plantation large-scale agriculture. And that's enforced through a couple of ways. One, you know, you have this constitutional amendment, or not amendment, sorry, it's in the Constitution that foreigners are not allowed to own land in Haiti. This is mm -hmm. supposed to be blocking that foreign capital from coming in, buying up land. Second thing that happens is that because the government is strapped for cash, it needs to somehow pay the people working in the government and the people working in the military. And so they start dividing up the plantations and giving them to military officers and the military officers that take those subdivide them they can sell them off but you start getting this breaking up of plantations and effectively everyone in the country becomes a landowner this is very mm -hmm. different than the experience of what you see in a lot of latin america where you get these latin uh, latifundia countries where they have large-scale plantations just these giant haciendas where you have kind of these elites who are running the country most of the people don't have land. Haiti's very different from this. Most people do have land. So everybody has land. And then what happens when they start having kids? Well, they decide that they are going to divide the land equally among their heirs. Each person gets a plot of land. 
And then, you know, everybody has a right to veto whether that land gets transferred. And so you get this going on generation after generation. These pl plots get subdivided over time. And it turns out in the early 20th century, when technology is advanced and now sugar is like super profitable to start farming again in the Caribbean, lots of these Caribbean islands become large sugar uh, producers. And Haiti, the once world leader in producing sugar, isn't producing sugar at all. And that's because to produce sugar, you need a large plantation. And because just because of the agricultural technology and the nature of the uh, of sugar is that you cut it, it starts immediately drying up. So you have to process it as soon as you can. And so you want to make sure that you can coordinate all this. There's lots of things that go into it. And it turns out the best way to do this is on large plantations. Yeah. Cuba gets some, Puerto Rico gets some, Jamaica gets some, right? Everybody starts getting these large plantations. And people try to do this in Haiti, but because of all these factors, the ban on foreign property ownership, the fact that any plot that I need to get, I'm going to have to just like buy from a ton of people and not just them, their whole families. This mm. leads to this hysteresis where they can't start up sugar again. And that's one consequence. And we might say like, hey, that's that's fine. They said they didn't want sugar again. They were able to stop sugar from coming back. And so we, we can maybe excuse the fact that they can't do sugar anymore. But the problem that continues with this is that because all these plots are subdivided, the optimal thing for you to do is invest a lot of labor into these plots. You're just constantly tilling the soil and doing everything you can, and you can't invest in capital to come in and farm these. And so you start getting these massive erosion problems over time because the soil is overworked. You don't have any incentive to invest in erosion prevention, especially because you might be living on two acres and if erosion prevention says stop farming those two acres and farm a different two acres. Well, I don't have another two acres. I've got this, mm -hmm. right? And so you start to get a lot of environmental problems in Haiti over time. You start to see agricultural productivity plummet because the soil is becoming exhausted and everything's on small scale agriculture. And so you see all these problems mounting over time. And a lot of them are rooted in the fact that Haiti made all these decisions about land very early on in their history. And so what we can see is that poverty a lot of times has these deep roots that go back to decisions that were made a long time ago. And trying to overcome those decisions and move forward on a new policy can be really difficult because it's just such a complex system that got you there in the first place. Yeah, that, that's awesome. So I guess, you know, the, these problems are so much more convoluted than that initially you look at it, you know, that's really cool. Yeah, and actually I should even point out that like one of Haiti's main problems today isn't even necessarily agriculture. It's the fact that there's just massive political instability. Mm -hmm. Right now, as of us recording this, like Haiti doesn't have a president. They don't have any elected leaders. The capital is being run by uh, a whole bunch of gangs that are fighting over territory. I'm seeing videos even today of people being chased out of their neighborhoods because of gang wars. And this political instability has become a really big problem, but it's been a problem through all of Haiti's history. And some people like to point to the fact that one of the reasons it's such a big problem is that nobody got to be a big landowner and be content just like farming all these things and having their peasant workers 
So everybody started competing in politics. Mm. And so because everybody's competing in politics because they don't have their own, or they don't have inequality in land, then politics becomes this natural and stable thing that just constantly becomes uh, a problem over time. And so even those political institutions, the political instability, some point to these problems in land as the root. And so again, it just is interesting to see how these convoluted processes create these situations that we have. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. And and so, you know, there's just so much to understand and that's really cool. I, I wonder, you know, with, with these principles, I guess, in Haiti, I wonder, with, with your experience, I know you're up to date on the literature, like how, how do these generalize to other countries? I know that we had talked about, you know, the, the transportation roads and, and in, in the green triangle jobs, as we call them, which which were the, the ROI on education is different as you develop transportation and, and such. Um, like how, how do these principles, I guess, of poverty, like what do you see in other countries that's similar than Haiti and, and how is it different? Like what's, what's general across different countries and what's specific to different countries? So we're coming to the realization that the world is, has too many small farms. So there's been a lot of work on this showing that like rich countries have large farms, poor countries have small farms. And the thing about rich countries is that these large farms allow you to use this capital that uh this and these technologies that just make your agriculture so much more productive actually one of the fun ways of spending your time on youtube if you're like me is just like watching agricultural technology and seeing the amazing ways that we harvest carrots now that we harvest hay just like we have developed like such amazing technologies but these technologies need to be used at scale if you only have a two acre farm, like the, the equipment itself covers more land than that. And so you're not gonna be able to use that farm. Yeah. And so you have all of these farms around the world that are undercapitalized because they're too small. Like this is a problem in India. There's a lot of a problem, lots of places in Africa, even in China, we're seeing some issues with this where we just have farms that are too small, just like in Haiti. And the question is, why don't we move out of these systems and get to larger scale agriculture? And Haiti's answer is, well, it deals with a lot like a deep institutional history and the rules that we created around transferring land. And that ends up being something that generalizes to other contexts. China has strict control over land and they didn't let you lease land for a long time. And as a result, people own land that they didn't farm that well. And some people own land that they farmed really well and they were looking for more land and they couldn't get it. And it wasn't until we started getting some reforms in the mid 2000s that allowed some of that Chinese land to be reallocated to better farmers. India, we see a similar problem where some parts of India have better functioning rental markets. Some of them have laws that say you're not allowed to rent or if you do rent, then you're gonna be giving up your land to your renter. And so you're just gonna have all this variation in these institutional arrangements to prevent that agriculture from being more effective. And the problem with this is that like agriculture, while necessary, like we've solved the problem. We've solved the agriculture problem. We see it in the United States and all these rich countries. It's very easy for us to be productive in agriculture. And when we do that, we can move people out of that and get them to be in more productive industries that we actually need those people in. But if we can't get those people out, Right, people are so dependent on these small scale farms for their living, 
then they're going to be stuck in this low value added industry and not in the high value added industry where they could be on the path to economic development. Yeah, that, that's super interesting. So I guess like the, these institutions, they play a huge role and, and, and that's really cool. I'm excited. I, I think that at this point, you know, I'm hoping that the, the listener understands, you know, there's, there, there's so much going on in poverty and I'm really curious to know, Dr. Paul, um, first to kind of dive into like, you know, what are the solutions that are out there? How effective are they? And, and maybe what do you envision will be the future of, uh, I guess, trying to, to, to contribute our ideas in, into these problems? Um, so I guess I, I have noted a few maybe of those. Um, I, I guess unless unless there's something we want, we can go backwards and kind of dive a little deeper in, into these these components as we try to talk about these. But you know, what are some of those most popular solutions in, in poverty alleviation? And then, I, and then I'd be curious to know, in your opinion, what are the strengths as well as the drawbacks of these? The first one is, I think a lot of people have heard of it these days, is microfinance, which Microfinance, um, I won't give up, I'll let you kind of dive a little bit more into what that is, but essentially that, that's become increasingly popular and there's definitely been strong successes, but I wonder what, what, are, what are the drawbacks of that and kind of how does that fit into poverty alleviation? So microfinance was this idea that was really po uh, pioneered by Muhammad Yunus, at least he gets a lot of the credit in the Grameen Bank. They won the Nobel Peace Prize for this. And it was the idea that you have a lot of people are running their own businesses in developing countries, right? They might be running a uh, tortilla stand on the side of the road or they're selling fruits or something like that. And they're running these businesses and often they need some sort of capital to get their business to grow. So you need inventory and to get that inventory, you need to be able to promise up front some sort of payment. And a lot of times you can't promise that payment up front. And so you take out a loan from the, uh, the inventory owner. So if you're selling fruit, the person who has fruit, you're selling some wholesale for uh, some retail product, you go to the wholesaler and you take a loan from them. And the interest rates on those are insanely high. I don't know the exact figures, but it's like you could spend $10 on, um, let's say fruit. You get the, uh, you, so you spend $10 on fruit and you have the inventory in your store to sell that fruit. At the end of the day, you have to go back to your wholesaler and you have to pay them back $11. And while that doesn't seem like terrible, what that is is like a 10% interest rate per day. And then if you take that 10% interest rate per day over the entire year, you're looking at you know, 300, 400% interest on, on a loan. And that's an insanely high interest rate. So the idea with microfinance is like, these are just really small amounts. What if we were able to give businesses access to much cheaper finance? They could then scale their businesses and they could have much more success without losing a lot of it in interest rates. And this was pitched as like the miracle drug for uh, poverty alleviation. Like we just need to give these entrepreneurs, we have all, all these people who are entrepreneurial minded and they're going to go out, they're going to start their own businesses and they're going to be able to go out and transform their own lives and their countries by using these small loans. And the nice thing is that 
yeah, like we're talking like a hundred dollars. We're not talking some big, like multi-billion dollar project that we're going to have to invest in. You just invest in a ton of people at a hundred dollars. You're going to get some good stuff happening. It was really sold as a miracle drug. A lot of stories were coming out showing, look at this major success story. And so that naturally led some economists to say like, this sounds like it's being sold really highly. Let's run an RCT. And the overall results from these RCTs is that microfinance does lead to some positive benefits. It does lead to a little bit better businesses, leads to higher consumption, but it's all like relatively small, which is fine. Like we're seeing a positive ROI on it, but it's not the miracle that everybody purported to. It's not super transformational. It's helping some people on the large end. It's hurting some people on the other end, but it's not the miracle that people said it was going to be. And there's a couple of reasons why this is obvious. Like one, everybody, I mean, if you're selling a fruit stand or a, you're selling tortillas on the side of the road, like you're pretty undifferentiated from everybody else, right? So Peter Thiel has this great book, Zero to One. And Peter Thiel says, the idea is like we, if you really want economic growth, what you need is new businesses that no one's ever had before. Facebook comes out, <coughs> Facebook comes out and it's a business that hasn't existed before. And then it gets its copycats, right? But Facebook is this big innovation. You get something like a Tesla. It's the, elect I mean, electric cars have been out there, but it's the first electric car that actually works and is popular and everything right and that starts a whole electrical electric vehicle uh industry you need those zero to ones you don't need everybody starting tortilla stands on the side of the road because that's just saying like we have a hundred of these and the hundred and first one is not going to lead to economic growth it might help that person personally but it's not going to like suddenly transform the economy like something like a Tesla, Facebook, a Microsoft, these big companies, well, what become big companies that start off as these huge innovations. And so what is better is like finding the people who are like the really good entrepreneurs that are going to have these types of transformative ideas, finding them and giving them a lot more money than just a microfinance loan. And so that's a problem of talent identification. Like, how do we find these people who are super good? How do we get them the money they need? How do we promote those skills? So microfinance is fine, but something much better would be something where we're able to just like cultivate talent and push it to the top. Where they can hi then hire the whole community and yeah. Exactly, exactly, right. Like nobody, I mean, sure there are people who have their like ideas of their own businesses, right? But again, like you don't get rich in the, the area by like starting your own tortilla stand on the side of the road. You end up ha having a much more prosperous life by working for a company that's incredibly productive and pulling out a salary for that shows that you added like a whole bunch of value to that company, right? Like that's where we see the most growth across any country is not running your own business. It's working for a really good business. That's awesome. That's really cool. And, and I appreciate you clarifying that and teaching, teaching that. The other thing that has become increasingly popular um, is, you know, the idea of, of traveling to these countries, 
you know, there's these organizations that won't name names, but they will take, you know, a group of, of high school students or high school age youth and, and go to a go to a country and you know build an orphanage or build a school. Um, and that's something that I think is maybe one of the most popular ideas of how we can help poverty, you know. And and what is your opinion on that? You know, what does economics say and, and is is there a place for that in, in poverty alleviation? And what what's your take on, on that? So I have a personal connection to these kind of things because like I said earlier, I uh, spoke Haitian Creole and the earthquake happened in January 2010. And I looked at this as like an opportunity for me to like be there and help with the relief efforts. And at my college, there was a group of students that came together and said, hey, we're going to go down, we're going to help Haiti, and we're going to help in an area that's probably not getting much attention. And so when we put our efforts together, we planned out like the areas we want to target, like microfinance. We had um, health and sanitation. We had a few things of uh, goals that we had for going down there. And I look at my time down there, I spent two weeks. I look at like how much I spent. I look at how much I didn't make because I left my job for two weeks and just all these things. And you know, let's tally it up to like $4,000 was the cost of sending me down there. And the benefit that I provided to Haitians was close to zero and the cost was four thousand dollars and if instead if i had taken the money from my plane ticket and instead of missing out on work i had spent like 40 hours at work then i could have taken all that money and just like sent it to a haitian and given them four thousand dollars of direct benefit mm -hmm. that would have probably transformed their lives so this is an idea that's central to a movement called effective altruism now, effective altruism like really goes into some like wild deep ends because they're like very utilitarian and they have like these ideas of like you know how do you weight like the life of uh, a crab versus a human and like what kind of things might we do to help crabs could that improve should we devote more money to helping crabs instead of humans kind of thing that's like a really deep end on effective altruism but the idea behind effective altruism is how do we do the most good at the most efficient cost? And so they look at these things like these trips where you go down and you personally volunteer as huge wastes of time because you have a ton of human capital that's very valuable and you're spending it building an orphanage when in reality you could be working at your very high paying job, putting in a couple more hours, maybe doing a consulting call and some sort of freelancing thing and then taking that money towards those solutions that we found are very effective. And that's gonna do much more for improving lives than you going down to those orphanages. I see what they say there. And yeah, I, like I said, like I fell victim to this. I do think there are some benefits to those experiences in poor countries. I think it opens people's eyes to what the world is like around them. And I think that there might be some long run benefits of having those experiences. I had not been to a developing country before I saw Haiti after the earthquake. And I've been to Haiti several times since then, and I'm involved now in international poverty research. How much of that, and if I produce any good for my research, how much of that comes from that one like really weird investment in going to a developing country and wasting $4,000, right? I, I'm conflicted. I don't want to tell people like you're a terrible person for going down to an orphan to a country and building an orphanage, right? Like you're doing some good. 
is it the most good that you can do? I think the question is still open because there could be long run benefits that come from those early interventions that you personally have some sort of transformational effect that then changes what you do down the line. That's, that's really cool. I actually just got the book about effective altruism, doing good better. So okay, um, William McCaskill. So I just started, so that's, he's uh, a big player in that for anyone listening. That's a cool, a cool, cool space. I think that's awesome that you mentioned that. Um, Anyways, you actually gave a really good segue into the third and final one I wanted to, to ask you about, which is the idea of donating to, to either large NGOs or directly to people. I think that those who do have you know, wealth or have means, I think one of the biggest things limiting them is you know, we have this idea that, oh, if I donate it to this big nonprofit, it's just going to pay the CEO. If I give it directly to the person, they're just going to buy alcohol. You know, how, how do we navigate that? I know that we had talked about, you know, like, like how, well, what is the economics? What does the research say about just giving money like to, to these areas and, and how effective is that? Yeah, this has been a really hot area of research over the past, uh, let's extend it to 10 years, maybe going out to 15 of when we look at these interventions, right? Like Bill Gates was uh, famously back in like 2017, 2018 promoting that like, we just need to give poor people chickens or like Heifer International is a big organization that gives livestock to poor families. And economists started saying like, well, how much more effective is a chicken or a cow than just giving them cash? Because that, you know, I mean, you have to buy that cow, you have to transport it. There's gonna be all the feed. There's so many things that go into maintaining that cow. What if we just give them the cash? And if they want a cow, they can go out and buy one. And if they don't want a cow, they could now use that money to go do something else, right? Like there's a clear benefit to giving people cash where you can expand what's the, what options they have for this. Now, you brought up some of the concerns are like, well, we think that people don't know what's best for them and that they'll often buy alcohol, maybe cigarettes or waste their money on a satellite TV or whatever it is. And there's a couple of responses to this. One is some of the research that has gone out there and experimented with giving people uh, cash has shown that by and large, they're not buying what we call temptation goods. Maybe they're buying a few, but it's not like such a significant share of the money that we're giving them that we should actually be concerned that this is worthless. Like most of that money is going towards things like improving their homes, investing in their children, especially when we give it to women like they tend to invest in their families and we're avoiding temptation. goods, So we don't have to worry that much about it. But you say like, well, you know, they go out and they buy a satellite TV instead of investing in education. And while I certainly am sympathetic to like, yeah, like we shouldn't just be like subsidizing satellite TVs. There's also the argument that like, who am I to say what the best way for them to spend that money is? And we have plenty of people in, the US who are on TikTok all day or on uh, you know, Roblox for little kids, right? Or they're playing some sort of online gaming or I mean, the richest person on in the world is Elon Musk and he spends like way too much time on Twitter. Yeah. And it's kind of, um, uh, oh man, what's the word that I'm thinking of? It, no, I don't wanna say patriarchal, it's um, paternalistic. 
it's kind of paternalistic for us to look at other countries and say like we actually know what's best for you and you shouldn't be buying those things and again like i understand the the gut instinct of like you know like that shouldn't be how they're spending their money well like imagine somebody comes into you and says like no like you, you shouldn't be spending your money on vacations to hawaii you should be investing that money in whatever other ventures are out there and you say like actually i don't really care about that other venture like i don't want to go and get a master's degree i'm happy with a bachelor's degree and i'd rather like spend that money on going on vacation i had this conversation with a friend the other day he uh he's older than me and he's been renting a condo for like the past 10 years and i was really surprised that he didn't have a house and he said like we didn't want to get a house we decided to invest that money in traveling the world my children have been to like 17 different countries we've had all these experiences and i'm like okay great like that's nice that you were able to say like this is what we want we'd rather have money that we can spend on experiences that rather than money that we're going to spend on a house it's not my decision to, to tell them what was the better option for them and so when we're like giving cash to people in developing countries i think a lot of them know the best way to spend it and are some of them going to spend it on a satellite tv well yeah but are some of them going to spend it on getting their daughter a better education or are they going to spend it on starting their new business or replacing that tool that they need to replace like yeah they're going to be able to do that and if we're just giving them cows because we don't want them to spend that money on something bad but a cow is good like i don't know what i would do with a cow if somebody gave it to me right? like <laughs> I mean, we just like have this natural assumption, like, yeah, poor people in developing countries, they know how to take care of cows. They might not know how to take care of cows. And so instead of wasting our money on a cow, we could just give that money directly to these people and have, you know, hopefully better outcomes for them as well. That's awesome. And, and I guess that it kind of leads into to, to my last question before kind of the, the closing is, you know, in there's a lot of research being done it's definitely in your area there's the focus is you know what what can be done what has been found is maybe the most effective i guess the the economic theory and, and the research has found in terms of helping in this problem so there's oliver williamson uh won the nobel prize in economics back in 2009 and in one of his papers he broke down like how we see efficiency like where the sources of inefficiency come from and so he had like different social levels he had the top level which was like culture and culture is just like such an embedded thing that's not something that you can even hope to change then you have institutions and institutions are like the rules of the game how uh who's allowed to participate in what and all those kind of things and those are formed over like hundreds of years and then he had contracts and contracts are like if institutions are the rules of the game contracts are how the game is played right like you and i come to some sort of agreement and one of us broaches that agreement that contract then dictates like the the punishments or the consequences of us breaking that contract right like that that governs us and then you had like the actual allocation mechanisms in the economy whether you're using markets or auctions or all those kind of things and he said that like those things that happen at like the the very bottom level those are like third order on efficiency like those are things that we can like change today but like they're only going to move the needle a little bit if we want to really see like the most transformation we have to make sure that like contracts are enforced 
and that institutions are beneficial. But those are like things that take place on a scale of like a hundred years, right? So there's not like a quick fix to this, like a democracy, capitalism. These are things that take time for an economy to like fully integrate and make part of that economy or like even uh, like equality, like women's rights, black rights, right? Like we're, it's a multi-decade process that we're still working through right now, right? Like that takes a long time for us to adapt to those things. And those are the things that are gonna make the biggest difference in the economy. Those are like first order, second order things that like, if you can get those right, that's what's gonna just catapult your economy. But again, they take place over such a large time scale that it's really unsatisfying to be working on those kind of problems because like, you're not gonna see those solved in your lifetime. Yeah. And so like a lot of our focus is on those third order things, like how are things allocated? And so we look at things like, well, <clears throat> let's give somebody a hundred dollars in cash or a hundred dollar microloan or something, right? Like these little things that say like, let's try and help people get the resources they need. But you're doing that in an environment where they don't even have access to, you know, their political voice or the opportunities that are really going to help them out. But you can do it right away. Right. So I call it poverty alleviation versus economic development. If we want true economic development, we need to be fixing institutions. But that's unfortunately something that it's such a long process that it's you just might not see the progress that you want to in your life. And so we tend to focus on poverty alleviation, which is given that you live in a sucky world, how can I make your life just like marginally better? Mm. And so we will focus on these things like giving people cash and, uh, you know, trying to improve schools to the extent that we can. I think like our effort needs to be on like institutions and contract enforcement. But given that's such a big problem and so difficult to work on, should we be working on like those small poverty alleviation things? Yeah, I guess. And I think the best way that we can do that is like I said earlier, we need to identify talent and help promote that up as much as we can. And so anything we can do to develop talent, anything we can do to raise people's aspirations and so let them know like, yeah, you can do these things. Tell the underdog stories, the rags to riches stories for the people in those countries and let them say like, yeah, I'm gonna pull myself out of the situation. And then over time, we'll see those things change. That's awesome, I, I really appreciate that. And that, so that leads us in really well to, so in each of these episodes, I wanna ask, three of, of kind of the same questions that I, so you'll be the first, I guess. So, so that you'll, it'll be the first time, you'll be the first one to hear these. And, and it kind of contributes in, into that, that purpose, which is that this podcast can help those of us in whether we're regular person, you're in business, you're in politics, well, wherever you are, what can I do? So, so Dr. Paulson, I'm curious, what do you think that like a single person like you or me can do um, to move the needle, even in a small way, for those living in poverty, international poverty. Yeah, that's a, a tough question. Like I said earlier on what effective altruists think, like maybe the best thing for us to do is to just invest our time into making a little bit extra money and then using that money towards some sort of good cause, right? Like donate to... Um, 
I mean, I, I know I kind of made an argument against donating organizations, but there are times when like organizations can do things that individuals can't. So mm -hmm. like that might be a good place to do. So Give Well is a example of an organization that's evaluating charities saying, how can we improve the lives for people? Making a friend with somebody in a poor country and just like sending them money. That might actually be like a pretty effective thing to do and just say like, here, take, uh, I've got a hundred dollars and I'll promise you a hundred dollars every year for the next five years. And just like use that knowing that they have a stable source of income that can make a huge impact in one person's life. And that's maybe like the most that you can really ask for. I don't know how many things we can do that's going to just improve like so many people's lives. But if you could have like a transformational impact on one person's life, that could be just as satisfying. That's awesome. I love I love the focus on the one because with, with these big intractable problems, I think that we get bogged down by focusing on one. That's really cool. So this is number two. If you were the CEO of a large multinational corporation, how would you? I get like a multi a very large company. How would you approach the problem of international poverty? So it's hard for an international organization or like a business because they, I don't know if incentives are in line for them to like really address poverty alleviation. I mean, maybe if you have kind of like a social part of your mission that says like, we're going to devote some resources to helping people and what are we going to do? Like it could be on business training. Like, so there's good evidence that like people in developing countries just haven't received the management training they need to run their businesses. And so you could run some sort of consulting gig for people in developing countries and help develop their management skills, take the things that you know and transfer those to developing countries. That's part of that talent development. But really, like, there's got to be just so much overlooked talent in these developing countries. And we're starting to see some of this come out in sports, actually. Like, you're starting to see, like, college basketball, college football are recruiting people from Africa, right? They, they're getting these overlooked recruits that they can come in they make a huge impact on their team they go pro and then those guys go back and they have a big impact on their communities and so like if you can have some way of like identifying overlooked talent from these developing countries then you might start a domino effect that says like now they go back to their community they start investing, they bring, they raise everybody's aspirations and you start seeing a new generation come forward. That's awesome. And so that leads, I guess my last question maybe lines up a little bit more with institutions. And it's, if you were the president of a G10 country like the United States, you know, what would you do in order to help solve this problem? So this is, <laughs> I mean, we, during the Cold War, this was like a big focus on these countries, right? Because these countries, they want to push forward capitalism and democracy as pushing against communism and uh, authoritarianism, right? And so in the Cold War, we were actually invested a lot in state building and yeah. trying to push forward these types of institutions. And like, arguably, we did a decent job. I'm sure there's lots of people who are like, no, like there are lots of problems with that time period. But we've like been so backed off of that for that so long that we don't even know how to do the successful things that we did know. Today, it's just like such a harder problem because there's not the political will behind it that we had historically, right? Like I, Haiti is such a good case in point on this because Haiti is just absolutely crumbling right now. 
and the U.S. has no political will to go in and help. They don't have any economic benefits for the U.S. They don't have any political benefits for the U.S. It's purely a humanitarian case, and they just know that like it's a lose-lose situation when they go in there because it's going to be another U.S. In- invasion of some sort that is undermining local authority. And so the U.S. just says, like, we don't want that bad PR. Like, we'll just kind of keep our hands washed of the situation. Um, so what would I say? Like, if if there was political will, man, you know what? I The answer that comes to my mind right now is I would just, like, the thing that you can do that doesn't affect other countries directly is try to open up immigration in your own country. Let more people in from these countries because you just have so many opportunities available in your country. You could 10x people's wages by letting them come in. You're going to give more people an incentive to go to those countries, like to invest in their human capital so that way they can take advantage of opportunities in rich countries. And you don't have to do anything where you're imposing your will on these other countries. You just say like, America's open for business. Come on in, guys. All the research says that this is a huge benefit to the economy. Just just come in and fulfill the American dream. And that would like do so much at lifting people. That's awesome. I'm so glad you, yeah, that's so, so, so interesting. I'm sure there's going to be questions about that, but that'll be for another time. But thank you so much, Dr. Paulson, for, for jumping in. That's, that's, I love, I love, I love those last three questions. I think that's so cool how you broke things down into actionable, you know, you know, directions that, that we can go. So this is, I'm, I'm sure I'll thank you on behalf of everyone listening. I appreciate your time. I know this is a crazy time of year when you're starting the new semester, um, but thank you again so much for being here. It was my pleasure. Awesome.